we have a, uh, as I said this morning, a, a, a wonderful question uh, to uh, talk about tonight. Uh, uh, un- unfortunately, is a question that uh, will take the next 10 weeks to answer. No, not that much. But it, it feels like it, and, and we definitely will not be able to answer all of it uh, this evening, but we'll get a start on it. Uh, so the, the question is referring to Romans 12, verse 2, uh, which uh, says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable will of God. We'll talk about it in a moment. And Ephesians uh, 4.23, which again also talks about renewing your mind. The question is, I've read several books on how to train your mind to stop negative thoughts and focus on what matters. How does the Bible say we are to renew our minds? The simple answer is just do it. Oh, well, that's, that, that, that's the way it is, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that's, it, in, in fact, uh, uh, Evan and I were talking beforehand about, you know, we, we read that all the time. Do we stop and think, well, how do you do that? Uh, yeah, there, there's a big challenge. How do you renew your mind so you are thinking more godly thoughts and not negative thoughts or sinful thoughts or, or those sorts of things that uh, afflict every one of us? Uh, how do we do that? So there's a, there's a foundational answer, an initial answer, and then there's um, uh, some practical ways of accomplishing that. So we'll deal mainly this, this evening about the foundation of it and how to do this. I, I got to stop right here and go, I'm so thrilled. My second granddaughter is here with a wonderful young man who is just fantastic. I just embarrassed the life out of her, but that's what grandpas do to granddaughters. <laughs> anyway, she's absolutely wonderful. And the guy she's messing around dating is absolutely wonderful too. So that's, that's good. So you're two wonderful people. Thank you for being here. At any rate, um, uh, so uh, what were we talking about? Who knows? <laughs> you start talking about grandchildren and you just get all, <laughs> it's just terrible. That's right. You want to see some pictures? <laughs> That's, that's next. All right, uh, so let's, let's, let's start like this, and, uh, and we can talk about some of these things. Open your Bible, in fact, to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16 through 18, and uh, you, might, uh, you might notice something that stands out in this text that was read to us this evening. Uh, we have to start when we're talking about dealing with uh, thoughts, dealing with negative and positive thoughts, we have to start with understanding that we are in a battle, and God and Satan are in a battle for our minds, and we are in the battle that goes on in our minds. And as verse 17 states of Galatians 5, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit <clears throat> are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So you see the battle right there, that there is, that the the flesh battles against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh to try to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There are two ways of looking at keeping you from doing the things you want to do. Uh, 
some would say keeping you from doing the bad things you want to do and then the other side of the coin is keeping you from the good things you want to do I, I prefer uh, B <laughs> I think that's and, and Paul talks about it that way too in Romans 7 of wanting to do what's right but then end up oftentimes doing what's wrong so I, I, I think that what I would see this as first uh, of all is that that uh, the flesh is battling against the spirit to keep you from doing the things you want to do if you're a christian you want to do the good things and he's talking to christians here so putting that just behind us verse 18 is the is is basically the critical key here walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh all right, so if we wanted to make a real simple answer, here's how you answer the question of how you conquer the flesh and conquer negative thoughts, walk by the Spirit, and you won't, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. So sermon over, lesson over, go home, just do that. Now, that's a, as, as one commentator called it, that's a very dense statement that Paul spends chapter 6, 7, and 8 in Romans explaining. So all you got to do is Romans, understand Romans 6 through 8, and you, you've got it. So walk by the Spirit, and then you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In order to understand that, the first and foremost, I've got to understand what it means to walk by the Spirit and in contrast, what it means to walk according to the flesh. Okay? Uh, and that's a little, there's some differences in Galatians with this, but not much. But Romans really helps us with it. So with that as a start, instead of having you answer the question of how that's possible, let's go to Romans 6, and, uh, and then we will, uh, we, we will talk a little bit about that, and I'll, I'll ask some questions, and you can do some answers and ask some questions as well. Uh, for those of you who are visiting with us, we typically use Sunday night for a sermony class <laughs> type of thing so that you understand. All right, in Romans, Romans chapter, chapter 6, and actually I would prefer saying Romans uh, chapter 5 through chap, verse 12 through chapter 8, but let's first notice Romans 5. Everybody, when you just look at that, you might re, re, be reminded if you've studied this before, uh, this contrast between uh, the, the conquering of sin against us, sin and death that brings, uh, brings about sin that brings about death, but grace that brings about uh, the salvation in Christ. So the summation in verse 20 and 21, he says, Now the law came to increase the trespass. Simple explanation. When God gave the law of Moses, it showed how many sins we commit. It exposed sin. It it didn't make people sin more, but it blew it up in front of everybody's minds. Because without the law, you wouldn't know when you sinned. 
And so the law came to expose sin and make it increase before our eyes and make us see it plainly. That's what the law did. But, he goes on, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's a summation of verse 12 down to that point. So the more sin increased, the grace of God was greater than the sin. We have a, we, we practice the song tonight. He gives more grace. There's another song uh, that is uh, grace that is, is greater than all of my sin. It's coming from this passage. So there's the idea that the grace that Jesus brought is greater than the sin that Adam introduced into the world. Time out. Everybody understand? Any questions to that point? Foundational. All right. But the grace he offered, the grace he brought, by the one act that Jesus gave on the cross is greater than what Adam did in bringing sin into the world and making that contagion pass to all of us. Greater is the grace. Now watch verse 21. Here's the key to chapter 6, 7, and 8. Verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Circle the word reign. What is on the throne of your life? It is either sin that brings about death, or it is grace on the throne that brings about life. Now, before grace was revealed through Jesus Christ, our condition was that sin was reigning on the throne. Now, um, how can we get sin off the throne? Take Jesus out of it. How are you going to get sin off the throne? Pardon? You're going to what? You're going to, yeah, that's the only way you can do it. Get rid of the law. How are you going to do that? <laughs> yeah, he gave the law. We're under law. So the idea is I can't escape it. There's nothing I can do in order to get sin off the throne. It's dominating me. Remember when Paul said in Romans 7, what the, the good that I want to do, I do not do. And, uh, and that which I do not want to do, I do. <laughs> oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? He explains that when sin is on the throne, it constantly conquers me in spite of the fact that I want to do what's right. But it just keeps defeating me. And since I can't get forgiveness under that situation because sin's on the throne, I'm just stuck. So the entire world is in a position to end up uh, losing their souls. Everybody has sinned and everybody has death reigning on the throne. So Jesus comes to dethrone sin and death and place grace on the throne. Okay, now I can serve God because grace is always on the throne and I always have 
forgiveness. I can always live in forgiveness. And with living in forgiveness, I'm now going to have a different way of approaching my relationship with God. Chapter 6, 1 through 11 of Romans. Now very, I'm going to have to be kind of quick here. So um, notice what he says. What shall we say then? In other words, since grace is on the throne, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So he starts by reminding them of when they were baptized into Christ, that they were baptized into his death. In this passage, what's What are we supposed to understand about being baptized into his death? What should click in my mind right away, according to this context? What? Okay, yeah. If I'm baptized into death, then the old life is to be taken away, and I am now raising to a new life that is being conquered by grace instead of conquered by sin. Exactly. So that happens. We come into Christ. We come into touching the blood of his death and dying ourselves. Uh, I wonder how many of us, when we were baptized, our first thought was, now I'm dead to the old life. Now I'm not conquered by sin. Now I won't live in it any longer. I hope that was, <laughs> that was part of what we were thinking of at the time. And so he goes on in verse 5. He says, For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Notice this enslaved circle, same as sin reigning. So enslaved to it. It was a cruel master. And then verse 7, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Not saying one who has died is simply forgiven, set free from this, slave, this master-slave relationship and, and that in which I'm constantly defeated. That's the idea. Verse 8, Now if we, have, if we who have... Um, died uh, with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he gives, lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not therefore stay. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to obey its passions. So he's talking about a state or condition that we are in. Sin no longer rules. It's dead. The law has been taken out of the way that continues to show us how we've died. We died in sin and then we are raised 
to now have grace on the throne and life uh, with God. Now, you say, okay, fine, what does that do for me? Well, living by the Spirit then is a different way of living than living by law and living according to uh, sin. Number one, it relies on grace reigning, giving us freedom from the cruel master of sin. It gives us some freedom. It gives us total freedom, not some freedom. It gives us freedom to live as we were meant to live instead of living with sin on the throne. I'm going to explain this in a second. And it causes us to serve and seek God differently than we did under the law. All right, here's the key then and how this question is going to be answered. We are able to conquer the negative wickedness of our lives and our heart that has conquered us. We're able to conquer that when we, we really can learn about grace being on the throne of our life and that no longer sin is on the throne and no longer death is on the throne and then we're motivated to serve God differently, a different way of doing it than we did under law. Now, that's a bunch of words, but I want to stop so we can understand that better. And the best way I know to do that is to ask this question. How did you serve God when you thought your salvation was dependent upon your own ability to avoid sin and obey God? Okay, I want you to think about that. How did you go about trying to be right with God when you thought your salvation was dependent upon your own ability to avoid sin and your own ability to obey God as He wants you to obey? Okay, let's give some choices. A through D. <laughs> and you can choose the one that uh, fits you. I almost, I would just love to have a show of hands on each one. A is me, D is me, B is me, but it doesn't matter because it's all wrong. You know, it's, it all shows it. So here's the, first, here's the first way you might have served God. You did as the Pharisees and lowered the standard. Lots and lots of people did that. You just go, well, the only way I can handle this is just to lower the standard. Now, Matthew chapter 5, verse 19 through 48, most of you remember the text there where he says in verse 19, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will no wise enter the kingdom of God. And then his next words are, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say unto you, if you hate your brother, or if you call him a moron, or if you, etc., etc., you are in danger of judgment. And then uh, you have heard that it was said, you, you shall not commit adultery. But I'm saying, if you lust after a woman to commit adultery, you've already committed this adultery in your heart. You know, he, he gives all these things. What were the Pharisees doing? They would take the law and go, I didn't kill anybody. I'm good. I hate that guy's guts, and if I could kneecap him I would but <laughs> oh kill him <laughs> see the difference they lowered the standard over and again and Jesus really shows how they lowered it by the very last verse of Matthew 5 when he says he says so you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect what <laughs> and Jesus goes just blops that down and everybody's going 
What? We haven't got a chance. And Jesus is going, exactly. Exactly. You remember when the rich ruler came to Jesus. What good thing can I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, why are you saying about good? There's only one who's good. And when he tells him to sell all that he has, the, the fellow just throws his hands up and says, I, I'm not going to do that. And he walks away. And the apostles go, if he's not saved, who can be saved? What was, his, what was Jesus' answer? With, with God, all things are possible. With man, no way. Difference? See? Difference is... Are you trying to do some good thing so that the Jesus is going, ah, now we're talking, you did a good thing, I think I can forgive you now. That's serving by the flesh or by the law. And how often is that going to happen? <laughs> You're going to go to God and go, yay me for today. I did pretty good. And he's going, well, tomorrow, maybe not. And yesterday was awful. <laughs> you're at a balancing act. Okay, so there's number one possibility if you're going to try to do it by your own ability. Number two is you decided salvation was dependent on your own standard. Uh, how many people have done that? What kind, of, what kind of standard might somebody come up with and say, I know I'm going to be saved because of I do what? I'm a good person. I'm a good person. That's the, yeah, I'm a good person. And the, the question would be, what does that mean? Well, I don't kick my neighbor's dog when he <laughs> barks, or I don't, you know, what, you know. He, he'd make up some rules. And then he'd say, well, I, I don't do that. I go to church. I, I remember my uncle uh, who preached for many, many years in Spanish. He said he had a horrible night, nightmare one night. And he was standing before God on the day of judgment. And God said, what do you have to say for yourself? And he said, okay, okay. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. And 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 God listened and listened and listened. He went, what'd you do? What? You didn't do, but what did you do? Ah! <laughs> he said, I broke out in a sweat and woke up. <laughs> what did you do? You see, you, you can't win that game. And, uh, and you're always going, and you heard me say this before, but you're always going to make a list that fits what you do best and can consider yourself justified. And the, that's what the Jews did. They had a basic little list. If I'm circumcised, I, I do the Sabbath, I go to synagogue or temple, and I do the festivals, voila, I'm in. They made their own little standard. Uh, thirdly, you might say, you, you lived a life as a Christian, uh, yes, but you're constantly living in doubt. All in favor? Yeah. Been, been there. And you, you're always going, okay, I hope I can, get, I can be saved. And I remember... Years and years ago, I'd been at the church in San Diego for very long, and I was teaching a class on Romans, and I just started by saying, how many of you are confident that if you died right now, you would be saved? And less the half of the class raised their hand. Uh, and it really gave me an idea of 
Woo, we've got a lot of work to do here. Uh, we're living in doubt. And uh, you, if you pay attention to your Bible reading, especially in the epistles, you will never find any New Testament writer expressing that a Christian is living in doubt. You'll never find it. So that should give us an indication. We're thinking wrong if we're going to live that way, and that's no fun. All right? So A, B, C, uh, everybody's found their place there. Maybe you've done B and C or something like that. Now here's, here's the fourth one. This is the sad one. Uh, you gave up an abandoned quote-unquote Church of Christ doctrine. <laughs> I'm, not a, I, I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek here. But on the other hand, this is what a lot of people have done. They just abandoned hope and figured whatever I heard ch taught at that church must have been crazy, and so they just left everything. And unfortunately, sometimes some churches taught that mostly you were dependent upon you if you were going to be saved. Um, remember, uh, some of you have heard me say this, but I, I remember a lady who is the wife of an elder back when I was a young preacher, and she, every time she'd see me, she asked the same question. <laughs> And I never had a good answer because I didn't know anything. But she said, uh, I hear preachers all the time saying, if you'll just do your best, you'll make it. How do you know when you've done your best? Great question. How do you know when you've done your best? Somebody tell me how you'd answer that. Stumped? Go ahead, Alan, tell me. <laughs> You're shaking your head. You don't have an answer. There you go. There you go. Who said we've ever done our best? <laughs> we sinned. That's exactly right. Wrong question. Wrong statement when a preacher says, if you'll only do your best, then you'll be able to make it. You've never done your best. Your best is don't sin. Wrong question. Wrong statement altogether. If you live by faith in Christ and you understand what that means, you'll have confidence. If you live with grace on the throne, you will have confidence. Now, how does that change how you're going to serve Christ. You see, it's going to change a lot. I'm not going to try to lower the standard, which is going to do what? If I don't lower the standard, what am I always going to understand? I, can't, I, I don't keep it perfectly. That's right. I fall short. That's right. It's keeping Satan on the throne. It's keeping law on the throne. It's keeping sin on the throne. So uh, if, I, if, if I don't lower the standard, then uh, what did the law of Moses say about violating even one of the laws in the Scriptures, in the Old Testament? What did, what did it say about us if we violate even one law? You're cursed. That's right. You're under a curse. Uh, let's see, who did something? I, what was it that somebody did something to get rid of that curse? Oh yeah, Jesus. He, he was cursed by hanging on a tree. 
He took the curse away by being, by being symbolically cursed by being hung on a tree. It wasn't literally cursed, but he took that curse away because he hung on a tree. So now, even though I don't lower the standard, I recognize that the curse has been taken away and that if I remain dedicated to Christ, even with my failures, what happens? I'm constantly being forgiven. If you walk in the light as he is in the light, 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sin. Uh, let's see, if I'm walking in the light, do I still sin? Yeah, because otherwise he wouldn't be cleansing me of all sin when I'm walking in the light. So I maintain that standard. Now, if I'm constantly recognizing that I don't keep the standard perfectly and I still fail, but he forgives, how, am I, how, am, what's, what, how does that change my motivation to serve him? How do I serve him differently? That's right, out of appreciation and love for what he's done. How do you serve somebody when you're serving out of appreciation and love? Because he saved your life. You, 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 you can't do enough, right? You, you, you cannot do enough because you're so much appreciating what he did. You just can't do enough. Now, that's the way you do a tax return, right? You just can't do enough. Well, wait a minute. No, that's not how I do a tax return. And a tax return, I'm, if the government makes a mistake on, and give, gives me a loophole, I got that, man. <laughs> I got a good tax guy. He says, hey, they didn't cover this part. You're free from that one. So you don't have to give them any more money than this. Wait a minute, but I wanted to give him another $10,000 after I gave him already $10,000. Just because I love them so much. They just take, no, that's not the way we operate. Jesus is different. We are motivated differently. Are there Christians who serve God based on law? What do they do? They lower the standard. I think I'm going to be saved just because I do this. I have had a few times, and really notable, uh, before I came here, uh, I preached a sermon, and a uh, fellow came up to me, and he goes, so is that really a salvation issue? I couldn't believe he said it. Guy's been serving God all his life. And you ask about knowing something about God correctly, and you say, is that a salvation issue? And I said, well, I don't know. Maybe I, I don't know what God's going to do with that. Oh, well, good, it's probably not. I don't have to worry about whether I understand that or not. I, I, I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> the Bible is a salvation issue. <laughs> I need to seek him. It's not the issue. It is the issue of do you want to please him in every way you can. That's the issue. It would be like me saying to Teresa, 
Hey, you know, if I don't come home every now and then and don't tell you where I am, is that a marriage issue? Is that a divorce issue? Would you dump me on that one or not? If you won't dump me, then I'll do it. What? <laughs> Wouldn't that be a crazy ask a question? No, oh, be, be nuts. And yet, that's just exactly what we do sometimes. So notice this, verse 10 and 11 of chapter 6. You must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. I'm no longer pursuing sin. Now I'm pursuing God. So there's where that starts. Now let's, let's compare this so we can understand that statement. Let's compare Romans 7, 1 through 6. All right? Romans 7, 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is still alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, (coughs) she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You notice those last, that last sentence. You're serving differently. You're bearing fruit for God, and we serve in the new way of the Spirit. So this is what I've been getting at this whole class. There's a different way of serving God when you're serving based on grace on the throne and in the new way of the Spirit based on and in contrast to the way you serve God when you were serving God by works or by law, as Romans has talked about that contrast. So what is the difference? Okay, so what's the analogy of marriage? in this what what is his only point he wants to get across as far as the marriage and (coughs) excuse me (coughs) the marriage analogy and the bound so long as you live analogy what is his primary point that's right death brings freedom from this law You are bound, in a marriage, you're bound so long as you live. If the husband dies or the wife dies, then you're free to be married to another and not be called an adulteress. So you also, brethren, verse 4, have died. So in this case, you're the one who died. When you died in Christ, what happened? You were free to marry another. Who's the one we married? Jesus instead of being bound by that cruel master law of sin and death, 
We have been freed from that, so now that we can be married to another, what are we able now to do that we're married to another? Verse 5. Michael mouthed it, bear fruit. We're able to bear fruit. What were we doing before? We were bearing fruit, but for what? For death. So that was the only fruit we were getting. Now we're actually able to get our head above water and bear fruit for God. It's a whole different way of serving. Now that I'm freed from that other cruel master, that other cruel husband, if you will, or something like that, now that I'm freed from that, I can now be married to Christ and I can actually do things that bear fruit and I'm not destroyed because of sin that's keeping me from being able to do what is good and right. Make sense? So our motivation has completely changed. Go back to a marriage relationship. Identify a marriage based on works. <laughs> yeah, they live in the same house and <laughs> say again. Okay, yeah, they're worried about splitting things fifty-fifty. That's that's one excellent way to look at it. Well, I'm not doing that if you don't do this. Okay, that's that's one way. Anybody give another illustration? Okay, so if I don't meet up to a particular standard, my wife's going to dump me. I did marriage counseling with a couple like this uh, for a solid year. I knew, and I finally told the man, I said, you will not win with this woman. Every day she threatens you about if you don't do this, I'm walking out the door. If you don't do this, I'm walking out the door. She's just trying to see how many hoops he'd jump through, and she really wanted to walk out the door. <laughs> She's just get, trying to find an excuse. This isn't, this isn't life of love, and if you are in a marriage based on works, how do you serve your spouse? Kind of keying off what Kelly said. How do you serve your spouse? Pardon? Bare minimum. Yeah, bare minimum. What can I get by with? How much do I have to do? It's like the old uh, saying that, that Christians, uh, I heard Christians say in a joke, do, do Wednesday nights count? You know, <laughs> what, what, you know you, you're, you're just looking at it by how, how much do I have to do and how little can I get by with? But a good marriage, a marriage that's based on grace, how do you serve in that marriage? You give your all. You're not looking at what does the other person do or not do. You're looking at how much can I do because of how much I love. In this case, that's how much we love. Now, contrast Simon the Pharisee in Luke 7 and the sinful woman. What's the difference? What'd you say? 
Okay, she's beginning. How is she different than him, though? How is he different than her? Okay, he didn't see himself as having much sin, exactly. And how, how did he serve God? How, does a, how, does a Pharisee, how did a Pharisee serve God? <laughs> yeah, he's got, he's, he, I, I, go to, I, I go to synagogue every week. She, she, she doesn't, you know. Uh, I, I didn't do any of the things she did. I'm not a great sinner like her. I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not this. And Jesus, of course, told a little parable. Two people owed a, a, a creditor. One owed 50 denarii, one owed 500. When, he, when neither could repay, he forgave them both. Who will love him more? Answer, I suppose the one he forgave more. Yeah, that's right. And the problem, Simon, is you think you just owe a little, and therefore you do not love much. She knows how much she was forgiven. She loves much because she was forgiven much. Is your service to God based on forgive, being forgiven much or little? This is, this is the malady of many who grew up, quote unquote, grew up in the church or grew up on the pew or whatever. They, ne- they do not see themselves as being baptized for the forgiveness of their sins as, well, you know, for me, my sins were I... Lied to mommy and daddy a couple of times. I swiped a cookie once. Uh, you know, I didn't really have anything, but, you know, but those people out there. Yeah. So there's a lack of absolute depth of poverty of spirit. First beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. How is the word poor defined in that text? It's mean to be poor of spirit. Pardon? Oh, there you are. I couldn't read it. I was like somebody back here. Lowly, okay. It's the idea of lowly. How lowly? Two different Greek words for poor. This is one of them. Didn't, you guys, didn't, didn't David Lee cover this in your Beatitudes class and you've already forgotten? Good thing you're under grace, right? <laughs> Poor in this text means you have absolutely, positively nothing. Nothing. The other word for poor in the Bible is the one that you work for a day, you get a denarius, and you live on that denarius and then work for another day. That's poor. But this poverty is you have nothing. Zero. You don't have a dime. Spiritually, you have nothing to offer. And unless you see yourself as I am totally absolutely bankrupt spiritually. You do not appreciate what God has done for you. And then you will not love as the sinful woman did. 
you will not love much because you're forgiven much. We don't measure that by, well, I never fill in the blank. You measure it by the fact that you are totally lost. You have nothing. You can't offer God anything to get him to show you grace. That's impossible. Same thing with the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple in Luke 18. As Jesus tells the parable, how does the, how does the tax collector pray? Lord, <laughs> I tithe, I do this, I do this, and I thank you that I'm not like that terrible tax collector over here. And the tax collector won't even look his, his face up into heaven, strikes his breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's where we have to be. Bankrupt. When you're bankrupt, you, you, you serve him differently because of what he's done to forgive you, and it causes you to desire him deeply. Now, to go back to the question, how does that help us with negative thoughts and things like that? It's because I'm pursuing God so much, I don't want to do those other things, and I want to please him. And it's not that I'm ever going to be perfect at that, but I keep growing closer to him. And you know what happens when you grow closer to God? How do you begin to see your sin when you grow closer to God? Even worse. That's right. You begin to realize how bankrupt you really are and how great he really is. And the more you see his greatness, the more you desire him. Peter, last point here, Peter, in the boat. <laughs> are you Peter prior to the miracle of fish, Luke 5? Or are you Peter after the miracle of fish? Prior to the miracle of fish? Lord, we fished all night, but it's your word. I'll cast the nets out. Doesn't even call him, calls him master. He doesn't even use the word Lord as in Lord God. And then afterwards, what's he say to Jesus when he sees the great catch of fish? Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. I can't stand in your presence. What, Pete? You've been hanging out with Jesus for months and you didn't think that. Now all of a sudden you realize you're standing in the presence of God himself and you realize that you're going to defile him by being around him and Jesus' answer is, fear not. From now on, you will catch men. In other words, now I can use you. I couldn't use you when you thought you were something. That's why we've been months hanging out together and you've never got it. So I did this miracle so now you realize that without me you're nothing. But with me, I'll teach you to catch men. It's a beautiful change. Now we've got to expand on that more and get some practical things. So we'll end about 8 o'clock tonight. And we'll be, no. uh, so we'll pick that up. Stay tuned. Uh, same station. Uh, uh, maybe it's two weeks when I'll speak again on Sunday night. Okay? But thank you for your participation. Hope that begins at least a foundation of help. Keep that in our minds. I, I will say this. When most of us, if not all of us, and I don't care whether you've been in the church or not been in the church, 
Most of us has lived according to law, according to the flesh. I think pretty well everybody in the world does. You look at it as, let me see what good thing I can do to have eternal life kind of thing. When you've lived that way a good part of your life, it takes a major effort to learn the new way of the Spirit and a new life and how you think. So it doesn't snap your fingers and go away. You'll still deal with it some, but we're going to help that in the coming lesson, okay? So stay tuned. Very good. Uh, we're going to sing a song right now. Obviously, if there's any way we can help anybody, glad to do that. You can uh, step forward and let that be known or uh, talk to one of us afterwards, uh, and we will certainly want to help as we stand and sing.